Well, we are going to continue one more week in reviewing the gospel before we get back into the book of Hebrews. So, as you know, um, we just heard from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let me make this connection from last week, if I might. Last week, we looked at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and we saw how the peace of God changes everything. Amen? The peace of God. We talked about peace on earth uh, and goodwill towards men. But the better translation is, and with whom God is pleased. And what is meant by this is that Christ came, was incarnated, lived the life that we could not live, and died the death that we deserved to bring peace. That we were enemies of the triune Godhead. As uh, created beings, we shook our fist. We uh, committed treason, but God wanted a relationship with his creation, and so Christ made that peace possible, and we talked about how that peace brings about changes, amazing changes, changes in our access to the throne, our access to God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We no longer need to go to a high priest. We no longer need to sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats. And with that access, we have acceptance. Not only can we come into the throne room, we can live there. We are God's children now. And it also changes our attitude. And what we saw in Romans chapter 5 is, is the, the culmination of the great work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to skip ahead today and look at another aspect of the gospel, and I want to anchor it with a pretty provocative statement, if I might. Dr. Denny Burke, professor at Southern Seminary, makes a point regarding much of evangelicalism today. Quote, Cultural Christianity is no Christianity at all. All the externals are there, even a profession of faith, but the essence is missing. Jesus described it this way, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. It's a pretty strong statement. Kind of a punch in the throat. Cultural Christianity is no Christianity at all. Some of you uh, old-timers there remember Paul Newman's movie, Cool Hand Luke. You didn't know he was a singer until he sang the song, Plastic Jesus. And if you remember that song, he talks about basically a cultural Christianity. That you got your plastic Jesus on the dashboard. And he's with me wherever I go. Oh, I don't worship him on Sunday and I don't commit my life to him. But he's my little plastic Jesus. And Denny Burke makes this point that, that though we have this thin veneer of Christianity, we've lost what it means to follow Christ. Let me say that again. Though we have this thin veneer of Christianity and traditions, and we see it a lot even around Christmas, especially around Christmas, how much of Christianity is now divorced from following Christ? How did Christ call his disciples? Leave your nets and follow me. And that's what we're going to look at today 
in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul has just spent the first 11 chapters sharing with us the wonderful news of the gospel. He wants us to understand the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and his work. He wants us to understand the gospel and its essence. And then in chapter 12, he now wants us to apply it. The point is this. The gospel doesn't just inform, it transforms. We don't just understand theology. We live it as Christians. Our timeless truth for today is, in light of Christ's sacrifice for you, be a living sacrifice for Him. In light of Christ's sacrifice for you, be a living sacrifice for Him. Now, if I might, I want to read this again, the text, but I want to back up just a couple of verses because I want us to understand what Paul is doing here. Paul was uh, writing to the church in Rome. He wasn't very impressive in, in presence. We have early church descriptions of him being short, bald, bow-legged, with a unibrow. Whether that's true or not, we'll have to wait till we get to heaven to find out. But this was a man who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could write. Amen? And when he wrote, the words were a fire. And so he's just spent all this time, the first 11 chapters, writing about our estate, our, our expected punishment and the judgment to come, what Christ did on the cross and how we might be saved. And then he gets to the end of this whole doctrinal section, and it's as if, it's as if he... He looks up from his manuscript and just exclaims, look with me, if you will, back at chapter 11, verse 33, and imagine Paul writing this. Imagine him screaming it, actually. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And then there's no chapter break. This is the interesting part. On that doxology, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We don't have chapter breaks into the Middle Ages. That goes together. That's the transition. We go from this doctrinal to this, as Kent Hughes says, this doxological, this praise. And then he segues right into the practical. And they work together, don't they? We can't have the practical without the doctrinal. And if you have the doctrinal without the doxological, well, then you don't understand the doctrinal. It's that clear. And that's the point of this in chapter 12. 
If you understand the first 11 chapters, if you understand what God has done, you will, by logic, by understanding, present your body as a living and holy sacrifice. So today we enter, from 12 to 16, we enter the practical section of the letter. It goes from instruction to exhortation. Um, two points are going to take us through. Simply breaks this way. We want to understand how the gospel changes how we live. If the peace of God changed our access, uh, our attitude, this is going to change how we live. So two simple points. We want to embrace being all in. And I'm going to use that phrase over and over again. Total commitment. We want to embrace being all in. And then two, we want to practice being all in. If the gospel really has traveled the 18 inches from our head to our heart, it changes everything. It changes how we live, how we breathe, how we relate, how we act, how we eat, how we drink. And you're going to see all those things in the coming chapters. But we're just going to cover two verses today. Let's look at verse 1. Embrace being all in. I urge you by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. But there is that word before all of it, and it is therefore. Therefore. In light of the first 11 chapters. So let's run through the first 11 chapters. Starting in chapter 1, we have the bad news of the gospel condemnation. And then through chapter 3, we start to hear about justification midway through chapter 3. Verses 6, I mean chapters 6 through 8 are about sanctification. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And this begs the question then, but what about those promises made to Israel? And then we have, verse, we have chapters 9 through 11, which is called vindication. Has God rejected His people? No, may it never be. So, condemnation, justification, sanctification, vindication, and now we move into application. The theme of Romans, the righteousness of God. It is the biggest, deepest book on the gospel. So as Paul transitions us from understanding the righteousness of God to the application, applying the righteousness of God, he's going to do it in concentric circles. And so if you ever wondered how the gospel is to, to flesh itself out in our lives, well, chapters 12 through 16 show us that. Shows us how we relate to God. And then we, how, how we relate to the body. And then how we relate to others, to society to the government, and then it circles back how we relate to the body again. But let's look at that phrase in verse 1, the mercies of God, the mercies of God. By the mercies of God, in light of all that he said, in light of the condemnation and the judgment that set upon us, in light of the fact that we had earned wages of death, and in light of the fact that the Prince of Heaven came down and took our place on the cross, absorbing the just wrath of God, extending mercy, 
and drawing men into himself. In light of all that, he says, therefore, you present your body as a living and holy sacrifice. What's interesting about this in verse 1 is he's basically saying what you understand will impact what and how you worship. What informs your mind will inform your heart. You will fear that which you worship and you will worship that which you fear, Dr. John Henderson says. What I understand about God is either going to produce within me worship or rejection. You say, okay, well, that's great, right? I understand that. We're Christians. We get all that. Like, no, 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 hold on. He's making a very interesting connection here. Turn back to chapter 1. I want to show you one thing before we continue on. Chapter 1, verse 25, under that condemnation section. What you understand will result in what you worship. Look at verse 25 there. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, Paul's making a connection. They're reading this in one sitting. He said, remember I talked about how all of us, prior to coming to Christ, worshiped creation. Oh, it may have been things, but it was ultimately self. Those who embraced the lie, who suppressed the truth, worshipped creation, worshipped the creature. But those who embraced the truth worshipped the Creator. And that's what we see here. Therefore, in light of the truth, worship. Because remember, in chapter 1, those who embraced the lie worshipped the creature. Worship is all that I am responding to all that I know of Him. Those who know God worship Him. Believing results in worship. And this is the imperative then. Understanding this, understanding who God is and what He's done, present. Present, present, present. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. Now, we're so used to this verse, we don't think about it. Present your bodies as a as a sacrifice? If you do a, a lookup on uh, Wikipedia, the trusted source, right? Talks about sacrifice. This is from a purely pagan definition here. The offering of food, objects, or the lives of animals to a higher purpose, in particular, divine beings, as an act of propitiation, wrath satisfaction, or worship. In simple terms, it's offering things, crops, but mostly animals, to a divine being to satisfy just wrath as an act of worship. I think we get that. Even pagans get what a sacrifice is, right? So now imagine it's 950 B.C. and you're an Israelite and it's time to go to Jerusalem for a big festival and you're going to offer sacrifices. You're excited. You get to see Solomon's temple. The whole town is bustling. And you know this is a great, great time of worship. 
But this worship is going to cost because you're worshiping God Almighty and He requires sacrifice. So as you're traveling, you're thinking, well, I guess I could do a grain offering. I mean, I, I had a pretty good crop this year. What, what's offering a few stalks? That's not going to cost me much, right? But then you're thinking, yeah, but that's kind, that's kind of going cheap. I do believe God, so maybe I should offer an animal. You know, you have some of your livestock with you. and Well, I, I guess I could offer a, a lamb. But when I offer the lamb, I'm not exactly getting him back. Fluffy ain't coming home. Okay, well, that'll, that'll, that'll cost. That's a little bit bigger commitment because he's going to get totally consumed in the fire. But is that what God wants here? What kind of sacrifice is God asking for here? Oh, it, it's a commitment. But the commitment is us. And it's not a dead, burned-up carcass of an animal that we give away. It is a very live sacrifice of ourselves. A living body, a whole life. It is one that reflects an understanding of the great salvation that has been given us. And the picture is us crawling up on the altar, offering our whole selves, living for Him as a living sacrifice because he died for us as a sacrifice. And that's the connection. You understand this, you will live this way. You don't live this way, you don't really understand the first 11 chapters. You don't get this, he's saying maybe you never got it. Salvation. It's a life that was given for another and now our life has been purchased by him because of his sacrifice, and he wants ours. There's a story that kind of put it in perspective for me. In September 2010, Brian was a 33-year-old um, software designer for a gaming company, and he was traveling with his wife, Erin. They had been married just five years, and they were expecting their first child, and they decided to vacation in Washington State. And I've been there. As you're driving along, there's lots of, of wooded areas. And they're driving along, and they see a car coming the other way, a Chevy Blazer. And this Blazer starts to swerve back and forth into their lane. Unbeknownst to them at the time, it was a vehicle carrying people who were transporting heroin, cocaine, and marijuana. And the swerving was the driver who was trying to take a sweater off. And before you know it, he was fully in their lane. And Brian had a choice to make. If you've been there, you know that the trees come right up to the road. And so he either was going to go off the road, roll and probably go headlong into a tree, or hope that they could survive a head-on collision. He had to make a split-second decision. What do you think he chose? Neither. In a moment's time, he swerved to the right, turning the car sideways and absorbed the full brunt of a 6,000-pound vehicle, killing him instantly, but saving his wife and his unborn child. 
He offered his life as a sacrifice. Aaron's quote perhaps sums it best. I'm just trying to draw a lot of strength right now knowing that Brian made that choice to save me and the baby. So I can't waste that gift and he wouldn't want me to. I don't know too many other illustrations that encapsulate what this verse is trying to say better. Because Christ gave his very life for us. He does not want us to waste this gift. Christianity is not wasting the gift. He doesn't want us to. He wants us to live for him. And yet, to be honest, we're full of excuses, aren't we? Everyone's willing to take the free gift, but doesn't want to be the living sacrifice. Everyone wants to understand all the great doctrine, but wants to make excuses as to why they don't commit their lives, why they're not all in as a follower of Christ. Tell me if you haven't been guilty of some of these excuses. I know I have. Oh, I would like to be all in, but I'm so busy with my career right now, perhaps when I retire. Let me just get through college, and then, then I'm really going to get serious about Christ. Do you understand the season of life I'm in? Do you understand how much time it takes to raise children? Well, I believe all that stuff, but I'm just not much of a reader. I just, I just get my theology from the sermon. Being a serious Christian can be such a turnoff to my circle of friends. I say those excuses not to shame us, but to see it in light, to see it how Christ sees it. When under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes and says, I've just given you as much as you can handle of the gospel, therefore, live like you understand. It's incongruent to do anything less. It's incongruent. It doesn't make sense. One author describes it this way. Offering our bodies as a living sacrifice in response to Christ dying for us is as simple as giving God a blank check with our life. How much can you write into a blank check? As much as in the account. As much as is deposited in there, as much as you've got to give, that person can write that blank check. And there's no restrictions, right? And that's the crux of the matter. Modern-day evangelicalism, cultural Christianity, has Christians more as contributors. But God wants donors. We have a tendency to give God our, our leftovers, right? It's like, uh, it's like when you're at the intersection and you've got the, uh, the fire department there with the boot. You know, you're going to put change in but it's your leftovers. And plus, it's just filling up your ashtray anyway, right? Just like, here, clink, clink, clink. 
Here, God, my time, talent, and treasure. If I have left over. I mean, if, uh, if I got eight hours sleep and I don't have to be to the office very early or the kids don't have to be at school, then, then I might sit down and, and read my Bible for a few minutes. Uh, if, if I'm not too tired and it hasn't been that long of a day, well, then I, I'll probably go to small group. If it's not too cold outside, ooh, hitting home, right, you know, I might come to church. And yet that's not being a living sacrifice. Look at those three characteristics. Living, holy, and acceptable to God. Hebrews 13 writes, Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. When we offer our lives collectively, Metro Bible, because we're all in this together, when we offer our lives in response to him giving his life, then we're giving a blank check. And you know what he's writing in? He's writing in mission on our lives. What's our theme verse here? 1 Thess 2.8. Imparting the word, imparting our lives. It's living a life on mission. It's living a life in such a way that all we do supports what we've been called to do. You hear me say it a lot, but it, it helps me to remember when I wake up and, and maybe I'm overwhelmed by the day or, or I'm kind of depressed or I'm thinking, am I wasting my time? To remember, God hasn't taken me home yet. God gave me eternal life. He saved me for eternal life, but he also saved me for this life now. And we're on mission. And, and as long as we are living and breathing, the mission is not complete. Amen? We've got work to do. You say, well, what is that work? Well, it, it's walking in the good works that God has prepared beforehand, making disciples, making disciples, meeting needs, spreading the gospel, we don't always know specifically what that looks like every day, but if we wake up, there's still work to be done. So that sacrifice is living. It's also holy. It's set apart for special use. That's what holy means. Holy, holy, holy. Set apart for special, specific use. Set apart for a purpose. It, it's like we have these dishes at home that I'm not allowed to use, okay? They're up in a glass case. I know what they are. They're called Mikasa Wedding Band Edition because it's one of those wedding gifts that, that guys smile and say, thank you, and we have no idea what they're for. But your wife's excited because she picked out the pattern. And those dishes, if I went and grabbed one, put a sandwich on, the wrath of the wife would come upon me. Why? Because they're not for sandwiches. They're for special use. They are set apart. That's why they're in a glass case. They're set apart for special use. The difference here is that the special use for which we are set apart is a daily use. It's all the time. It's to do the master's bidding daily. It is holy. And each one of us may be used differently. Same mission, but different field. Okay? You may say, well, I, 
I want to be used in this area. You know, I want to be, I want to be planting and harvesting in this field. I, I want to plant a vineyard in Napa Valley. And the Lord may say, well, no, I want you to do carrots in North Dakota. But it, you don't have to figure out where that is. You just got to bloom where you're planted. So we are holy, set apart. And what he is doing is we are a living sacrifice, but we're being poured out daily. So the thought is this. When you draw your last breath, is when you have completed your mission and you have been poured out, used for a special purpose, and now you go to receive your inheritance. Paul writes it this way, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Paul actually saw him being used up on mission as something to rejoice in. And I, I get it. I don't always follow it, but I get it. You know why? Because it is the only significance you will have. We know this from watching Hollywood, right? I mean, how many different color cars, Lamborghinis, port, whatever you can have will make you happy? It's the significance. It's the significance. If God only takes His people and His Word off this planet, then the only thing you're going to do that will last for eternity is to pour His Word into His people. And to be able to get to heaven and know that your life counted for something starts with saying, Lord, whatever it is, I'm a living sacrifice. Use me wherever. But that living sacrifice starts with dying to self, right? Because you can't be a living sacrifice for him and, and, and be a living sacrifice for yourself. I kind of you know, want to do both. Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to give my all, but I'm going to give my all over here too. No. No, there's a priority. This doesn't mean you go into a convent somewhere or, or a monastery or that you necessarily sell out and become a missionary in China. You still put food on the table. You still take the kids to soccer. But it means you put him first. We die to self. You know, you, you hear me use this principle a lot, but the best quote in the Band of Brothers is by Ronald Spires. He's talking to this, this fearful soldier. He says, The only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. The sooner you accept that, the sooner you will be able to function as a soldier is supposed to function. Our lives, living for ourself, what we see in Romans 1, worshiping self, is dead. Now we are a living sacrifice. The sooner we realize that, the sooner we quit advancing our own kingdom and we start to advance His kingdom. But here's the great thing, and this is what John Piper really nails down. There is no joy lost in advancing His kingdom. In fact, advancing our own kingdom doesn't satisfy. But when we die to self and live for Him as a living sacrifice, that's when we find the greatest joy. It's absolutely 100% true. God's got it rigged that way. You say, why? Because we were created for worship. And not to worship self, but to worship Him. 
And only when we worship him are we truly satisfied. That's why the Westminster Confession can say the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God's not asking anything of us that he's not given back tenfold. Amen? You think about that. You say, well, pastor, I'm just kind of a melancholy person. I struggle with depression. I get it. Here's your cure. Worship. You will find joy in worship. Worship with your life. A living and holy sacrifice. And it's acceptable to God. You know, when Peter and the apostles were arrested a second time in Acts 5 and were brought before the council, which is like the Supreme Court, and they say, you are teaching in the name of Jesus. We told you not to do it. They exemplified the very living part of their sacrifice. What were they doing? Against all odds, against danger, against any sort of protection or security for themselves, they lived and proclaimed God. That's the living part. You did this. Yes, it's a living sacrifice. And then when they said, you better stop doing this or there's going to be some serious consequences, what did they say? You tell us, but we're going to obey God rather than man. That's being set apart. And then when they left after being flogged, do you remember what they did? They rejoiced. They were dancing. They were excited because they were considered worthy to suffer for his name. That's the acceptable to God. Isn't that interesting? So to recap, the purpose of presenting ourselves the purpose of being all in is our spiritual service of worship. I don't use Greek much when I, when I preach, but there's something interesting there. That spiritual service of worship is the word logiken, where we get logic. It means we will offer our bodies as a spiritual service of worship because it's the only logical thing to do after what he's done for us. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, what? Demands my soul, my life, my all. It's only logical. If he has given his life for you, and that results in eternity, will you not live for him for the next 20, 30, 40 years? You say, well, is this a, a one-time commitment? Is this something that I, I do for a year after I become a believer and then I get to, to throttle, throttle back, I get to retire? Well, the word there is also liturgy, the service of worship. And it's where we get the word liturgy, and, it, and it's a daily service. Peter explains that, that we are now a royal priesthood. We are well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives. But practically, how do we do this? I can understand how to be all in. 
but how do I actually do this? Because we don't want to make New Year's resolutions and, and have them fizzle out in a week or two, right? For those of us who joined the gym this last week, let's go ahead and repent now, get it over with, get our deposit back, okay? How do we practice being all in? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. How do we practice being all in? How do we practice a total commitment? How do we practice being a living sacrifice? Well, there's a don't and there's a do. We resist being conformed to the world and we be transformed by the renewing of our mind. You ever wonder where R.C. Sproul got the theme to Ligonier Ministries? The renewing of your mind, right? Don't be conformed. Don't be squeezed into the world's mold. I haven't been over to the, uh, the kids' room lately. I don't know if they still play with Play-Doh. Remember Play-Doh? There was always one kid in the class who would eat it, right? But for the rest of us, what would we do with Play-Doh? Shoving it into some particular can or particular mold, whatever. Just get as much of it in as we can and then just beat it against the desk. Y'all didn't do this? Okay. <laughs> was that just an unruly kid in kindergarten? Beat it against the desk and... And what would it look like? Whatever I was shoving it into, Right? It would be conformed. What is the world continually trying to do to us? Even Christians. Get us to conform to its way of thinking. To its standards of righteousness. To its wisdom. Paul says, don't be squeezed into the world's mold. We're in the world, but we're not of it. We're not going to look like the world. Instead, be transformed. What transforms us? The Word of God. We are transformed by the Word of God. You, let me make a, a strong statement here. You cannot grow as a Christian if you do not read your Bible. Period. You cannot grow as a Christian if you don't learn your Bible. God has left us with a witness. The infallible, inspired, sufficient, authoritative Word of God. He expects us to know it. He expects it to change us. And the Word changes us by strengthening our faith. How does it strengthen our faith? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of Christ. We hear the Word of God. God divinely uses His Word to transform us, to daily grant repentance and strengthen our faith. Repentance is the word metanoia. It's a change of mind. The word here, transformed, is metamorpho, a change. It is a change of mind, repentance, a change of mind that results in a change of action. And it is the Word of God that becomes the catalyst for changing us, to, to grow us, to strengthen us, to grant us endurance, to grant us understanding, to grant us, watch this, discernment, single mark of maturity. Single mark of maturity of a, of a growing believer is discernment. Taking what we understand in the Word of God and being able to apply it. 
Even a baby believer can be faithful, but only a maturing believer has discernment. So you might think of it this way. Don't be squeezed into the world's way of thinking, but instead, cast off that mold and be transformed by the Word of God so that you might be used, so that you might be an effective sacrifice. You say, well, I don't feel like I, I don't feel like I'm conforming to the world. Well, you're either being conformed to the world or you're being transformed by His Word. There's no middle ground. There's no treading water. You're either moving forward, being transformed by His Word, or you're sliding backwards, being conformed to the world. Let me challenge us some more. This is a family meeting first Sunday of the year, I'm allowed to beat us up a little bit. What is influencing? What is conforming you more? Is it the Word of God? Or is it your career? Let me be specific. Are you more of an expert in your business than you are in the Word of God? Then you need to know your Bible better. You need to spend more time in it. What about sports? Do you know theology better than you do the players on your favorite team? Yeah, it kind of stings a little bit, doesn't it? But we have to realize, if, if we've been saved from, from, from justice by Christ's death, then at the very least we should know what He has to say more so that we can be used more. I'm all for sports and career and education but not when it surpasses knowing our Bibles. The Word or social media? Do you know more about your friend's social life than you do verses? Look, the point, the point in Romans 12 is not to be a better person. Paul's not giving us Romans 12 because it's a 12-step program. It's not. Okay, this is not behavior modification. What he's saying is, if you really understand the gospel, then you'll be transformed by it. You'll live for Christ. You'll be all in. Now, this is not for a varsity Christian, so let me just get five minutes of practical application here. This is not for a varsity Christian. This is not for a seminary student. It's not for pastors and elders. This is for Christians. Little Christ, Christ followers, all of us are to have a total commitment. Your commitment may look different than my commitment in various areas, but it's generally the same. It is a full orb commitment. God doesn't want half or three quarters. God doesn't want our leftovers. He wants us all. So how do we help you get there as, she as shepherds? How do we help the body uh, embrace being all in. Well, you might write these down. Little homiletics here. I got four C's. You know, Hebrews 13 says that we're going to give an account for those in our charge. Well, giving an account for those in our charge is more than just making sure our congregation understands the Bible, the first 11 chapters. It's also shepherding us to be a living sacrifice. So the first C is conversion. 
we're going to doggedly love each one of you enough to make sure of your calling, to make sure of your conversion. It's going to be hard to be a Metro Bible for very long and not be a believer. And, and if you think you're a believer, it's going to be hard to, to be ambiguous about it and not be honest to be able to articulate it. And so practically what we're going to do is we're going to build a relationship with you. We're going to have you in a small group. If you want to move towards membership, the first book we're having you read is Conversion. We want you to know the gospel. We want you to make sure that the, the theology isn't just here, but it's really, really traveled to your heart and that you, you've committed your life. Number two is we want you to commit to a church. Specifically, we want you to commit to this church. There is no picture in Scripture of a converted individual not being committed to a local church. If you're afraid of commitment, you need to go back and analyze your conversion. There is no concept of, I'm a converted believer, but I'm not committed. That's called being a consumer. Okay? The Bible frowns on that, and it says, this ain't real, because that's, that, that's why baptism was your first century membership. Because what was baptism? You were putting it all on the line. When you stood before people, and you proclaimed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you were baptized, you're not just saying, I'm a follower of Christ. You're saying, I'm with this church. And you got kicked out of the synagogue. You were rejected by your pagan family. It cost you everything. Conversion, commitment. Number three, shepherds. We want to help you with continued growth. We want to help you grow your faith. We know we grow at different rates, but there's growth. There's growth. How do we do that? We bear one another's burdens. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We encourage you with the word of God. We know you. We love you. We call you to serve one another. We do life together. And there's joy in it. Number four, if those three things are in place, we need to make sure we're communicating it meaning we're communicating it with those who either A, don't know better, or those who are lost. Communication. So it's like cycling back. We communicate helping people make sure they're converted, calling them to commit to a local church, and then helping them grow in Christ. Communication goes back up. And so this is what I want to leave us with this morning. The one area that I really want to focus on for 2022 is I want to revisit something we did a few years ago called One Gospel Conversation. One Gospel Conversation. Remember the gospel? God, man, Christ, response. What we want to challenge each other with, and let's talk about it in small groups, is how we're being deliberate to walk in the good works God has prepared beforehand and have at least one gospel conversation a week. One gospel conversation a week. You may not get all the way through the gospel. You may not get all the way through. Here's how you want, uh, here's how you need to repent and place your faith in Christ. It may be a building process, but it's a gospel conversation. God, man, Christ response. It's not saying, this is not a gospel conversation. Oh, we're so blessed at the Christmas gifts I got this week. That doesn't count, okay? All right? It doesn't say, uh, it doesn't say I'll be praying for you. Not a gospel conversation. Nice, but not a gospel conversation. 
It's asking people, engaging them, what they think about their estate, what they think about God, what they think Christ did, sharing with them what you've learned. Can I tell you what I learned this week about who I was, about what God did, about how Christ died for me? Pull something out of Hebrews. Can I share with you that I realized that I was being like that church in the book of Hebrews and I was deliberately drifting because I was afraid of persecution. And so I drew near. I drew near to the throne of grace. Did you realize that Jesus, that we're saved by his person and work, that he not only died on the cross, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, but he's daily interceding for us? What do you think about that? And you listen, and you see people respond. And if they don't respond, realize they may not be interested in the gospel. Pursue them. Lovingly pursue them. Don't go up to them and say, hey, I had a gospel conversation. I asked them if they were a Christian. Not a gospel conversation, okay? You know what I mean. Love people. Now, I'm going to tell you what my friend Troy Stewart says, pastor in, in Houston. Love people enough to risk relationships. Are we willing to risk relationships? Let me press this further. Love your spouse enough, if they're an unbeliever, to risk relationships. Because if you're not willing to risk a relationship with someone who may not be a believer, you're loving yourself rather than loving them. And you're not living as a sacrifice for our Lord. You're living for your own comfort. We gotta get there, folks. Metro Bible is so solid in so many areas. But we're way, way too timid. I'm way, way too timid when it comes to having gospel conversations. Amen? We commit to this in the new year? All right.